2: Then there you have the facts of life The facts of life There's a time you gotta go and show you grow And now you know about the facts of life The facts of life When the world never seems To believe living up to your dreams Suddenly you're
0: finding out the facts
3: of life We're gonna talk about facts today We're gonna to talk about information This is something i kind of been wrestling with all spring in different ways Um not incidentally, on Monday, uh, a philosopher uh, named Kiernan Sittia, uh was our guest, and we wound up talking about for a while about telic versus atelic uh, ideas. In other words, Telik a telic process is one that's expected to come to an end, like an election is, you know, implicitly, except for except for once in a while, like twenty twenty, a telic process. You know, eventually there's a campaign, then there's an election. They count the votes, they decide who wins, they swear that person in. You know, there are other things, other conversations that we have, things that we try to understand that are implicitly atelic. The debate in uh, America over abortion is atelic. I don't think it'll ever end; it just changes all the time. But there's also a way in which I think our brains—you know—information is it's almost like an old-fashioned movie on a reel, right? Uh, and a lot of times, we kind of just arbitrarily, because of when we learned something, when we cemented it into our minds. We just sort of stop the movie right there on one particular frame, and that's where we stay. Now the movie has many more frames to go. Somewhere else it's playing all the way out. Stuff is changing. And that's that's where we get into the idea of mesofax. And this is the second time we've done this show, and the second time we've started this show with this guest, uh, Samuel Arbisman is a uh, scientist and writer. Uh, He is the author of Overcomplicated uh, Technology and the Limits at the Limits of Comprehension and The Half-Life of Facts, Why Everything We Know Has an Expiration Date. So first of all, Samuel Arbisman, welcome back. It was 2010, uh, the last time you were on here, and that's really when mesofacts were—your ideas about mesofacts were really being introduced to the world. It was April of 2010 that we had you. Um, and so, but maybe let's sort of begin a little bit more macro about that, uh, the, the macro than, than mesofax, and just talk about the thing that's in the title of your earlier book, the idea that information has a half-life. What does that mean? Sure. And
4: so when we, um, when each of us kind of think about knowledge and and, and what we know, um, and we're obviously learning new things, um, and of course, there's also just the, the fact that I um, not to overuse the term fact um there's there's the fact that um what we change or what we know changes over time um whether it's um because of the state of the world so like how many billions of people there are on the planet that changes over time um but it's also what we I and mean, what we know in terms of like our current scientific knowledge so uh and many of us have this experience where we learn certain things in our textbooks when we're young and then discover that things are no longer true um there's also the idea that i I, I you read in the newspaper that uh, maybe some food is considered healthy, and then later on you read that it's unhealthy, and then or it causes cancer. There's all all this kind of different different amount of flux. And the idea, though, is that to kind of use the analogy of half life by um, but from the idea of radioactivity. So in the same way that there is kind of this flux. Uh, in terms of what we know. But there is also flux in the radioactive world. So there is a certain amount of uncertainty when a single atom of uranium, for example, is going to decay. It might decay in the next fraction of a second. It might decay in millions of years. Uh, we just don't know. However, if you take a large number of uranium atoms together and put them like into a, a larger chunk of uranium suddenly it goes from being entirely random to actually quite predictable you can actually trace out this nice curve of decay over time and you can actually map out the half life how long it takes for half of the uranium atoms to actually uh decay and the, the same kind of thing is true within what we know within terms of like the the scientific knowledge that even though it might be very difficult for me to predict which specific fact is going to be overturned or which new bit of information we're going to be learning um, as scientists discover new things. Overall, there is this clear uh, clear shape to how knowledge grows and changes. And so the book kind of explored the the regularities behind all of this flux in, in what we know and how it changes.
3: Yeah. I mean, you could almost do some generalized quantitative analysis of this, right? That there's a certain amount of time, a period of time in which uh, a physics paper is likely to become less and less reliably cited because its information just hasn't aged all that well.
4: Oh, totally. Yeah. And it turns out you can actually map out those curves for different fields of like how long it takes for a number, yeah, for a paper to, to stop being cited or be cited half an amount of time. Um, people have actually, have actually done this um, in terms of looking at discoveries within fields. So I think there was there was a paper uh, a while back, I remember, where it was looking at uh, d- advances and 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 papers within um various medical fields and they gave the um the, the they they took all the papers and they said okay we'll give them to a panel of experts and they say which of these are true and which ones have been overturned or or are rendered obsolete by new by new advances or new techniques and uh and then based on the, the age of the papers and whether or not those papers were true, they actually mapped out yeah, this nice this nice curve. it wasn't and and they, and they even said, okay, like, like over this amount of time, I think it, they said like maybe every like, over 45 years in this specific field, half of the papers are rendered obsolete. And so yeah, there is a very clear quantitative way of thinking about this within science.
3: So when it comes to us human beings, uh, I mean, scientists are are also human beings, but the rest of us who are human beings, you know, I think our emotions get involved, our sentimentality gets involved. I mean, one of the facts that changed you know, not all that long ago, was the status of Pluto, right? Uh, and I yeah. remember when that was announced that Pluto wasn't going to be a planet anymore, people got really mad, which, which kind of doesn't really make any sense. It's not like you owned a vacation home there and it wasn't worth as much anymore. There wasn't any reason to get mad that Pluto wasn't going to be a planet. But right. people were outraged, right? Uh, there is, there's some irrational emotion attached to the way we knew a fact.
4: Oh, totally, and it's and we and going back to what you were saying earlier, there is this clear attachment we have to the facts that we learn when we're young, and we kind of think, um, even though of course science is moving forward and things are changing, and there's there is this amount of flux, um, we we think it should be immutable, and when we are conf- confronted with uh, the difference between. What and what we learned when we were younger, and the way things are now, um, it can be very jarring. And and the, the truth is though, when, and when it comes to Pluto, and this is actually not the first time this kind of thing happened. Uh, so back in the uh, the 1800s, when people began discovering uh, asteroids within the asteroid belt, uh, these these minor planets were actually viewed. Like the, the first few were actually quite large, and people thought that these were these were planets. And so I think there are actually even charts with some, the first few. Um, of the largest asteroids actually considered planets and until so people realize oh wait a second there's a lot of these and now we're just going to call them all asteroids and p- be part of this asteroid belt so um in the same way that Pluto was then realized okay it's actually part of this this Kuiper belt of these kind of these these uh what, trans-neptunian objects uh and so yeah this is this is not the first time uh I I don't I have not found any um a- a- any writings about the <laughs> the school children from the 1800s and <laughs> and how they were distraught by this um, but I imagine there might have been some of that as well
3: Right. So, I mean, and, and it is, we imprint like baby ducks on pieces of information at certain times. And so you could tell me until you're blue in the face that dinosaurs had feathers. And if you woke me up in the middle of the night and asked me to draw a dinosaur, I'm not going to draw an emu with teeth. You know, I'm still going to draw the old kind of dinosaur because I just can't I, I can't work it in there. And I think, you know, we're all a little bit prone to this. Tell us. Tell them about your uh, grandfather and the number of chromosomes in a human cell.
4: Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, so, so my grandfather, uh, he, uh, he he was a dentist he he uh, lived to the age of 99 and when he he was in dental school i believe in like the, the late 1930s and uh and one of the things you learn in dental school or medical school and and nowadays just really just anytime you're taking a course in human biology is the number of of chromosomes within a human cell uh and uh we now know it's 46 but my grandfather actually learned 48, because there was this period um, from the, I think like 1912, when they first began to image the interior of a cell and be able to count the chromosomes, Uh, they were actually miscounted as 48. And it was just propagated within textbooks for several decades until the mid 1950s, when a better imaging technique was developed. Uh, And then people began counting and realizing, wait a second, we're not getting the number that we all thought was correct. And so, um, yeah, there's and there are many instances where sometimes Pretty fundamental things uh, can be overturned, uh, and my and my grandfather, I remember him mentioning this to me that yeah, he learned the the wrong number of human chromosomes, and we we think that should be something uh, pretty pretty well known, and maybe even well known for a very long time. But no, it's uh, only since the 1950s have we known the correct number.
3: So um, yeah, and so I mean things that you know do have, I mean, well, I, to me it is weird to think uh, that when I was in high school, you know the periodic table of elements had a certain number of elements and it's not like I memorized them or anything, but like I, I didn't I graduated from high school in 1972. I don't think I ever gave it much thought. So the idea that there's something called cyborgium or cyborgium or, or something, I mean it just right. there's, there's no it's not like the weather. you try to find out what the weather's going to be every day, right? But we don't do that with most information. We learn it once and we don't check in. I wonder how many more elements there are now. That's just not a process that even makes any sense to most people.
4: Yeah, and I, and I think that, and, and this is kind of ultimately the idea is the, of, of the meso fact, which is like this, there's this kind of like medium scale changing knowledge that changes slowly enough, that's, it's, but it's, it's still on the order of a human lifetime, but it's slowly enough that we don't update. And, it, and one of the major reasons is because when we're young and we are treated as little generalists, we learn lots and lots about lots of different things, whether it's geography or science or history. And then, as we get older, we specialize. We might learn a lot about our field um, or the area that we're that we work in. Um, and then, but unless you're kind of confronted with some of these new advances, um, either by just reading them in a magazine or your kid coming home and saying, "Guess what? I mean, dinosaurs—they're not these weird reptilian monsters; they're now fearsome chickens." Um, you're just you, you just don't realize these things, and it can be very surprising. But yeah, like the periodic table—I think I think since the 1970s, I think 12 new elements were added. And now, now to be clear those are not elements that you're going to come across in your, in your daily life so it's not going to affect things that much but even so this the periodic table this thing that we kind of think of as this kind of immutable thing hanging on the science classroom's wall um even that can be updated and change over time
3: right uh so meso fact moment according to producer jonathan mcpants Thirteen have been added since 1970. So, in oh se- wow, okay, look at that. I, even I am out of date. This is yeah. even better. I love you, it. You might not know about t- Tennessee or Tennesseeni. Oh wow, or something. There's something like that. It has Tennessee in it somehow. Uh, that's that was 09. So, and that's you know, for you, you wrote a book in 2010 about mesofax. and I suppose one of the you know, one of the gigantic ironies of this is that 13 years unspooled. I suppose there's stuff in your book that's not quite right anymore
4: oh completely I mean, yeah, and yeah and whether it's just because and i'm mentioning like the kind of state of the art of like the number of billions of people on the planet and we we just crossed 8 billion people like so that that's that, that certainly has changed um but some of it's also yeah we've as we've learned more we've actually like we we've rooted out error and i think that's also a really important part um yeah and so yeah there's been yeah, many examples which is which is great and and humbling and and exciting
3: i think the other thing about this is that i think most of us do think about science you know if we're not scientists in kind of I don't know, kind of stable terms, you know, like there's an angle of repose where the whole thing stops. And, and I, I, I wondered what you thought as we watched the pandemic uh, unfold and knowledge about the pandemic had to be learned in real time, tested in real time. Uh, we had to, we suddenly we're ingesting preprints. Uh, you, you see the process that you chronicle, but it's, it's happening on four cans of Red Bull. You know, it's changing uh, every six weeks. You know, Anthony Fauci goes up there and goes, I don't think there's any way this could be spreading asymptomatically. That's really not how this stuff works. <laughs> like a month later, you know what? What are the defining characteristics of this virus is that it spreads asymptomatically? In a way, we got a tutorial, uh, you know, but but at 78 RPMs on how quickly scientific knowledge and information changes.
4: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is I mean, ultimately um, and the way science operates, where it's and the reason scientists... Um, are operating the frontier is where we it's because where we know the least and that's where the most exciting stuff is happening but then sometimes for the 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 rest of human civilization to be aware of the the degree of uncertainty can be a little bit jarring but uh, no but this is exactly how it is now now to be clear though it's not the kind of thing where oh like if some one thing gets overturned then therefore you can just kind of like throw your hands up in the air and say oh therefore we, we don't know anything and overall we're kind of Asymptotically approaching the truth. Now, of course, along the way, there's going to be a certain amount of flux. But actually, the, the way to think about the, the way to think about this, there's a, a great quote um, from Isaac Asimov. I think he was corresponding with someone who was saying, "Oh, we we used to think the Earth was flat, and that's wrong. We used to think the Earth was a perfect sphere, and now we know it's actually kind of like a squash sphere, this oblate spheroid." Uh, and so, therefore, I and mean, how do we know anything is true? And uh, and Isaac Asimov, his, his quote was something to the effect of, uh, "When people thought the Earth was flat, they were wrong." When people thought the Earth was spherical, they were wrong. But if you think that thinking the Earth is spherical is just as wrong as thinking the Earth is flat, then your view is wronger than both of them put together. And so it's it's this kind of a idea that yes, we are learning new things, but we're getting closer and closer to the truth. Now, of course, though, and one of the reasons though that like, as things are being learned, um, you ha- and as a scientist you certainly have to embrace this. I'm one of my professors in graduate school. He told me this story that he had been teaching. Uh, he went into lecture on, on, a, on a Tuesday. And taught some some topic, I think on on something in theoretical ecology. And then the very next day, he actually read a paper that invalidated what he had taught. And so then he went back to class on Thursday, and said, "Remember what I taught you on Tuesday? It's wrong. And if that bothers you, you need to get out of science." And so there's this sense that like you almost need to rejoice in learning new things. Uh, now, of course, during a pandemic, it can be a little it can be a little a little bit disconcerting. But I think being able to kind of hold in our minds both the the draft form of science as well as recognizing that we kind of have to use the best information that we have that that's also so important Um, i think these are things that are sometimes easier to kind of uh hold in our minds together in the abstract than in the concrete but it's certainly something to to aspire to and we also have to remember and ultimately science it's not just a body of knowledge. We kind of think of, oh, like what is science? Oh, it's a whole bunch of things we know about the world. Really science is simply just a rigorous means of querying the world. And, and we're using this to constantly learn more. And as long as we recognize that, I think we'll have a much better understanding of all this flux that we see around us.
3: I think the other part of this is, you know, there's a novel by uh, Don DeLillo called White Noise, got made into a movie recently. And I think he says in it, the, the nuclear family is the cradle of misinformation because people are just just telling each other things that they think they know. Uh, and I think that's another part of it. You, I think you, this is sort of part of what you call in- invisible information stuff that we know or the stuff that we think we know, stuff that is that constitutes our understanding of the world. But it isn't really indexed anywhere. Like I, I'm sure there's all kinds of things that I think are true that I couldn't enumerate for you right here, but they make up my picture of reality.
4: Yeah. I mean, so I I think what I was thinking about like the yeah, this like invisible information or this hidden information or, or what some people actually call it like undiscovered public knowledge. It's more the idea that the, there is a lot of information out there, but it's... Uh, but because it hasn't been combined in some sort of structured way, we just don't know it. So so, um, so one of the examples that, that the person who kind of coined this idea of undiscovered public knowledge said was, like, imagine somewhere in the scientific literature, there's a paper that says A implies B. And then somewhere else in the literature, there's another paper that says B implies C. But because there's just so much science out there, no one has actually read both papers, it might very well be true that we can combine them and discover that A implies C, but no one knows this. And so it's just kind of it's knowledge that's out there, but that has never been recombined. Um, together to actually be something that people can act upon. Uh, and it turns out and there's a lot of this. And so the, this guy back in the 1980s, he, he ended up making a discovery in the medical field using this, this technique, even though he was not a physician, um, or a like biomedical researcher, um, because he was able to kind of use this approach towards information to connect different things. And so, um, yeah, I definitely think there is both the kind of knowledge that's out there that's kind of latent that has not been connected, as well as there's also just the fact that we have a lot of stuff in our heads that we might have learned that could be extremely outdated, but it still informs how we make our decisions. And we have to make sure we kind of root that out and actually use a sort of concerted effort to make sure that we have the most up-to-date knowledge, which is easier said than done.
3: Yeah, because most of us don't talk to scientists that much, or I mean, most of us just kind of talk to each other. And yeah, we, what, what I would I want to move to Pittsburgh? Why would I want to move to a place that had all those steel mills in it? Uh, well, of course, there aren't any steel mills. It's all robotics and and you know biotech. But uh, first of all, you can't really have a football team called the Pittsburgh Biotech Researchers. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and so, once again, we have these things that are some melange of fact history emotion, uh and they kind of constitute and, and we don't really necessarily have a lot of opportunities to disabuse ourselves of meso facts.
4: Correct. Yeah, and, and we and we certainly should try more, but in the absence of that, just kind of recognizing that maybe a decent fraction of what you think you know as this kind of immutable facts are, yeah, are just meso facts. There are things that you learn them a certain time and we've either gotten new information, the world has changed, uh, and uh and, and it's almost like just kind of constantly saying this refrain to yourself, like, maybe I'm wrong, what if I'm wrong? Kind of just having this sort of intellectual humility or kind of informational uh, hygiene uh, as you kind of go about your day.
3: Yes. You can start by watching every episode of Adam Ruins Everything. I and mean, He does a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to have to pause here, but this, it's so good to hear your voice again and uh, get back into the swing uh, of this whole information. Climate Samuel Arbusman, scientist and writer, uh, and author of Overcomplicated Technology at the Limits of Comprehension and the Half-Life of fa- Vax Everything We Know has an expiration date. Thanks for being with us. They all
0: laughed at Christopher
5: Columbus
3: when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison recorded sound. They all laughed at Wilbur and his brother when they said that man could fly. They told Marconi wireless was...
2: You can support this station by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going online now to ctpublic.org. I'm Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, here today with Robin Doyon-Aitken, senior producer of Seasoned, interrupting this wonderful hour of The Colin McEnroe Show about meso facts to ask for your support of this show and this station during our spring membership drive. Member support is bringing you The Colin McEnroe Show right now. If you value this program and turn to us to tell you about anything from vibes and time travel to why some people are leaving the United States or the latest in the world of pop culture or politics, consider giving to the station during this hour to show us your support. We are Public Radio's most eclectic, eccentric program, and we rely on listeners like you to do what we do. Consider giving a dollar for every time you've learned something from the show or for every time Colin has made you laugh. If you value The Colin McEnroe Show, now is the time to show us. Once again, you can do so by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going online now to ctpublic.org.
1: I want to start by thanking Judith from Lebanon. Thank you so much. She says, because I can count on timely, accurate, unbiased information and love all the other programming, that's why she was donating. My radio is only tuned to NPR. Thank you, Judith, so much. Um, You are a better Jeopardy player because of hours like this one, and that is worth supporting. We have a very special pop-up discount fans of this show will love, this hour only. You can Get a you can get Colin's mug on a mug at a discount. If you pledge now before 2 p.m., you can pick up the Colin McEnroe Show mug for a pledge of only five dollars a month. It's usually six dollars a month. So if you love a good sale like me, this one's for you. Call 1 800 584 2788 or go to slash donate to get that mug. And we are also working with a challenge grant this hour. If we make our $1,000 goal, Fuchs Financial will do a dollar for dollar match. Fuchs Financial is known for trusted expertise in wealth management, planning, and retirement. So we're so grateful that they've added a little extra motivation for you to give during this hour. Please be generous while we can double your gift. 1-800-584-2788 or go to ctpublic.org donate. We've also heard from friends from
2: Florida. Thank you so much for for giving. Um, We know we have listeners all across the country, and we really value your support during these membership drives. Um, As Robin mentioned, we have a great deal on the Colin McEnroe Show mug. This is great. You can keep it for yourself and drink your coffee out of it while you're listening to the show, or you could even gift it to someone who you know is a fan of the show. Um, And once again, these matches are a great opportunity because it can help your dollar go even further. Um, you know, now is the time to give. I know we are, you know, closing out our membership drive in the next couple of days, and you know, and some of you I know have been thinking about giving this whole time and haven't had the chance yet. Well, well, now could be that moment, especially with this with this match we have going on. So, again, if you value the station, if you value the show, chip in what you can. Every single dollar makes a difference. You can contribute now by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to ctpublic.org.
1: Along with your support for The Colin McEnroe Show, you can send someone a lovely bouquet of sunflowers, pink and orange Peruvian lilies, and hot pink carnations. It's a super pretty Mother's Day bouquet. You've heard us talking about it all week. It can be yours for just $12.50 a month. Or don't forget, The Colin McEnroe Show mug is discounted this hour only. $5 a month so go get it it'll help us meet our thousand dollar goal for the hour and double your gift 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call or go to ctpublic.org slash donate
2: we have a goal of raising $1,000 this hour and I know with the great listeners we have that we can totally do that so please call in now um, if you value this show um, you know we've been having a lot of fun lately we're going through a rebrand process and one of those things that we've been talking about a lot is what the show stands for and I love the language that we've landed on about this being public radio's most eclectic eccentric program if you listen you know that that's true you know that we're we're not afraid of doing shows that might sound like a bad idea and we love proving <laughs> to you that you know a show about zippers is worth your time um, so again if you value this show and the station we rely on members like you on listeners like you you can contribute now by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going online to ctpublic.org. Help us reach our goal this hour and thank you so much for your
0: support. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating
3: Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. The problem with starting a segment with a Todd Rundgren song is I just want to hear the whole thing. And that will never do. Because yes, now we're going to tell you about another miso fact. See I prefer meso fact. Meso fact sounds like we're talking about soup, but okay, meso fact, meso fact. Here's, the, here's a quick little anecdote. When my son was little, I don't believe in hitting kids, but sometimes you get really mad at your kid and you also have to convey to your kid that uh, that you know you are setting some rules and limits. And so I had just read this book by the Monks of New Skeet, uh, which was a stock training book. But a lot of it's based on wolf behavior, or at least what the Monks of New Skeet claim was wolf behavior. And so, <laughs> so I had this thing that I did with my son, which he still brings up once in a while, called alpha wolfing. And I would just put him on his back, basically, and hold my hand on his chest and look at him. And sometimes I would actually growl at him. Um, he actually mentioned this at Show & Tell one day, and I, I got a call from the authorities. (laughs) Not from the authorities, but from the teacher. What are you doing? Alpha wolf? Anyway, we all know about the alpha wolf. The alpha wolf is the boss of the wolf pack. He's a a big dominating male who has attained his status probably by defeating other wolves in combat. uh, And he can now command his choice of meats and food and other resources. He gets to use the computer first. I'm not sure. Uh, But we all know about this and it's kind of a term and it's kind of crept over into sort of pop sociology, and everybody wants to be the alpha male and all this stuff. Well, you're going to be surprised and possibly disappointed to hear that some of this, or perhaps all of this, is not in fact an accurate way of looking at wolves anyway. Maybe not much of anybody else either. Maddie Witt is joining us, an educator at the International Wolf Center in Ely, Minnesota. First of all, welcome to our show, Maddie Witt.
5: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: So once upon a time there was a researcher, right, who observed wolves, and at least temporarily came to the conclusion that, yes, there was one, there was a wolf pack, and it had a dominant male who was large and in charge. Uh, Can you say a little bit more about that?
5: Yes. Um, A lot of early wolf observations and kind of research into wolf behavior was done on captive wolves, um, because wild wolves are really, really elusive. They do not want to be around people. Um, They certainly don't want to hang out and show off all of their multitude of behaviors. Um, So a lot of that observing of wolves and kind of learning about their behavior came from captivity, which while they have the same instinctual behaviors, it's not necessarily the same structure that you would see in the wild. Um, So actually the first kind of paper that popularized this term of alpha wolf came from Rudolf Schenkel. um, And that was from observing captive wolves kind of duking it out for this top spot for dominance. Um, And our founder, Dr. Dave Nietzsche, um, he was one of the early scientists that really popularized that term um, in one of his early books, and that's how it how it kind of caught on. So they were watching wolves in sort of this unnatural environment in captivity, um, where they didn't necessarily have the same structure in the wild, and they had to figure out who was in charge um, by kind of doing their ritualized dominance behaviors and and duking it out to figure out who was the top dog, which isn't necessarily the case.
3: So one of the uh, people who rose up. To, uh to enthusiastically disabuse the public and and discredit the work of David Meech was David Meech David Meech at a certain point realized oh no that's actually not the way it works and I actually either read or saw somewhere that it was actually tr- sort of trying to discourage people from reading the book in which he had advanced this th- this fit this theory
5: yes he has actually um, attempted Many times to get the publishers to stop publishing the original version of his book that popularizes and uses the term alpha wolf um, and go with only the updated version, which does not use that term anymore. But but no success there because it keeps selling. Um, So he's written a new edition that does correct a lot of that information.
3: So I'm, I, at the at the center where you're working, the International Wolf Center, you have visitors. I'm guessing most of them walk in there or many of them walk in there with this idea that they're this, you know, pre-existing idea that there's an alpha wolf.
5: Absolutely. Um, that's one of, I would say, definitely in the top five questions we answer. Um, it's like, how many wolves are there? And then immediately, OK, which one is the alpha? So that's a discussion we have a lot of the time. Um, and we just kind of. You know, without going into too much of the backstory and the history, explain that that's um, a term that the scientific community has gotten away from using and and talk about um, the more natural structure of wolf packs.
3: So let's talk about the more natural structure of wolf packs. It turns out it's actually rather than us having to recreate ourselves in the image of wolves, wolves and people are kind of similar in the way they tend to set things up.
5: Yeah, exactly. So who we kind of previously talked about as being the alpha wolves or the alpha male and the alpha female, uh, when they started to go out and be able to do more observations of wolves in the wild, um, Dave Meech, for example, spent many years in the Arctic on Ellesmere Island, um, observing Arctic wolves, where they're much easier to see because there's no trees and very barren landscape. Um, And what he found was, is that wolf packs are at their root, basically families. And so those dominant or those quote unquote alpha wolves are really just mom and dad of the pack. Um, There is a hierarchy, you know, they're in charge, just like in human families, the adults are in charge, um, or at least we'd like to think we are. Um, So mom and dad are really guiding and teaching their offspring and their pups from several years, how to be good wolves, how to hunt Um, what predators or what things to avoid, um, how to raise their pups. And so big brothers and sisters will stick around for several years and help to raise the new small pups each year. But it's kind of that family structure of mom and dad and then all the kids.
3: Well, there's also, I mean, nobody ever talks or rarely does anyone talk in any context, wolves or otherwise, about alpha females. But it's not entirely clear, as I understand it, or maybe even not entirely true, that males are large and in charge in these wolf family units?
5: No, definitely not. Um, A lot of it does rely on individual personality, kind of the the basic unit of the pack or the leadership unit of the pack is going to be that breeding pair and there's there's strength in being that team. And a lot of their position comes from being in that partnership. Um, So it depends on the individual wolves themselves. Sometimes the male will kind of take charge um, and do a lot of the disciplining or or kind of, um, you know, guiding of the pack. Sometimes the female will. It really depends on the individual wolves involved, but it's that pair bond um, that really forms the leadership unit of the pack.
3: Even between male wolves, I think there's sort of also an understanding, again, that there's going to be this uh, super powerful, big, strong wolf who's going to just dominate everything. Um, You actually have a couple of ambassador wolves uh, named uh, Alden and Denali, I believe. Tell us about Alden and Denali.
5: Yeah, yeah. So they're Aiden. um, Aiden and Denali were some previous ambassadors that we had. Um, And I always like to use them as an example, because it does kind of destroy that big, strong alpha wolf myth. Um, At least from what we've observed, um, we've had ambassador wolves here since 1989, and we get new pups um, to add to our pack about every four years. So we've seen several transitions of leadership. Um, We've seen wolves grow up in our enclosure and come to take on that dominant role. Um, And it's very rarely or not often the largest, strongest, kind of most outwardly dominant um, male that does that. And Aiden and Denali are a great example of that. So Denali uh, was actually the largest wolf we've ever had here. He uh, topped out around 150 pounds. Um, And when people saw him, he was also very food possessive. So he would guard his food quite a bit which is a behavior actually quite separate from social dominance. That's just saying this is my food, stay away from it, not necessarily saying I'm in charge. Um, But people would see those behaviors. They would see him growling and snarling and chasing other wolves for trying to take his food. Um, And immediately, you know, we get a lot of reactions like, oh, that that one's got to be the alpha. Um, Where in actuality, his brother Aiden, who was smaller, he was about 120 pounds. Um, 130 pounds uh, at his max. He was much more reserved. Um, He was much more kind of aware of the social environment of the pack. Um, As a pup, he was often harassed by the other members of a pack, which would lead a lot of people to believe he was lower ranking. But he ended up pair bonding with the dominant female as an adult. And he was the dominant male of our pack, even though his brother was this much larger kind of Um, you know, food possessive personality. And Denali otherwise was actually a really social kind of tractable wolf. Um, Our wolves here are socialized. They do interact with our staff. And he was often really relaxed around staff and enjoyed being touched and rubbed by them. Um, So it was really funny to see those kind of different sides of his personality. The public would assume he was the alpha, and then he'd be, you know, going over to staff for belly rubs in our back area. So it can be deceiving.
3: Yeah. And there's something about wolves, too. They're so iconic. They're so mythic. I mean, uh, I know it's now been disproven that wolves do not eat grandmothers and then dress up as them. Uh, no, has ever Yes, done that. they don't. Um, but, but, you know, even, you know, David Meech, actually, it's kind of interesting that he wound up having to sort of you know, work hard to correct a misimpression from his own work. But one of the other things that he did, Farley Mowat wrote Never Cry Wolf and said wolves mainly eat mice and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. So David Meech actually had to sort of step and go, that's not really scientifically accurate. There's there's something about us, right? We want to just overlay our own narratives onto wolves.
5: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's a big uh, tendency, and I think one of the reasons why they are such a polarizing animal um, is because they are a lot like us, um, and they are, are very socially complex, and they live in these family groups. And so I think for a lot of people, it's easy to look at wolves and and see the you know the early roots of humanity in our social groups. Um, And how you feel about that depends on who you are and how that informs your opinion about wolves. Um, But I think that is why they are such a captivating animal is that we are able to see so much of our kind of human nature in them too.
3: Yeah, and I think also, Maddie, this will be my last question, but I, I sort of feel like there might also be – try- people are trying to get – guys, dudes are trying to get permission structure out of this. You know, if you're Jack Welch and you're kicking butt at GE as the CEO, it's like, yeah, I'm the alpha wolf. I got to do that. That's what leadership is. I'm an alpha wolf, right? There's a way in which I think it probably gets used to justify a certain amount of quasi-toxic uh, male behavior.
5: Oh, yes, (laughs) I think absolutely. Right. Um, It would be an easy excuse to say, well, that's just in, you know, that's in my biology. That's in nature. uh, I'm a hunter. Um, Which, yeah, what we know from watching wolves, that just isn't the case. Um, Mostly it's very socially conscious males, males that are careful and and intentional about forming social relationships with the other members of the pack. Um, They're concerned about pack safety. They're, you know, wanting to make sure that um, the pups are being raised and they're nurturing towards the pups. And so it's kind of a flip side. Um, Who actually becomes the dominant male might surprise you and not be quite the same same persona that alpha males in humans are projecting.
3: All right. So no more alpha males. Uh, Maddie Witt, thank you so much. An educator at the International Wolf Center in Ely, Minnesota. It has been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. And we're going to take another quick break here. No pledge break here. Just a quick, 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 quick break. And then we're going to come back with one more Mizo fact. earth
4: is a fire. Woman, you want me. Give me a sign. And catch my breathing even closer behind. Do, do.
3: We are back. Time to say some thank yous. A special thank you to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this particular episode. Thanks also to our senior producer, Lily Tyson, who is doing something really responsible right now. I don't have to look that up. I know that's not a meso fact. That just always is the case. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about one more meso or meso fact. I like the fact that even the pronunciation of the term is it sits in a certain, you know, unsettled ground of uncertainty. Um, This all started for me uh, on March 9th when I was reading the New York Times, as I tend to do. I I always wear white cotton gloves when I read my copy of the New York Times. Um, I didn't really know why. uh, And it turned out I don't need to. Uh, So here joining us is Jennifer Schuessler, uh, a cultural reporter covering intellectual life and the world idea of ideas for the New York Times, uh, whose piece I was reading. it It was called For Rare Book Librarians. It's Gloves Off. Seriously. So, Jennifer, welcome to our show. Hi.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: So, I, I you know, actually, I do teach uh, a seminar in the spring semester at Yale, and I'm always thinking I'm going to go over to the Beinecke Book Library, and I've got a list of things that I want to look at. But in my mind, there is this idea that before I'm allowed to touch anything with my filthy, creepy, sweaty, bacteria-ridden hands they're going to make me put gloves on. So it turns out well we you should start the story in your place which is that you did a very you did a different story about uh, uh some rare manuscripts and the photos upset people, right?
0: Yes, yes. So uh earlier this spring I had an amazing experience where I got to go to Sotheby's and the big auction house in New York City and see and as it turned out touch and even hold an extremely rare book. It was a um probably ninth century Hebrew Bible on um, parchment. Um, And it was, it's going to go on up for auction next month with an estimate of something like $50 million, which would smash all records for books and documents. And because uh, this was not my first rodeo with rare books, I knew that I could touch it. And the curator who was showing me the book said, please, 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 please put, A sentence in your story because we were taking pictures about how it's okay to touch with bare hands because people always get very upset when they see pictures or videos of people handling rare books with bare hands and i said oh yes i know all about this i'll do that i wrote what i thought was a very funny little aside in the story my editor cut it (laughs) predictably when my story in his great wisdom because this was not a comic story i was writing but um predictably when my story ran like half the reader comments were OMG, why is this woman woman touching the book with her bare hands? Like, this this picture is making me physically ill. And it was comment after comment. I started getting um, emails to me personally expressing alarm about the photos. And I half-jokingly, until I realized it was serious, said to my editor, you know, I should do a story about this. So I wrote the story that was published in March, which you read.
3: And, and so tell us a little bit more about this idea, um, the the idea that the cotton gloves are, are not important, maybe not even desirable.
0: Yes. Well, uh, you know, as just about every um, curator, archivist, dealer will tell you, at least in my experience, and I sort of have learned this over the years, that the best way to handle almost all um, rare books and manuscripts um, is with bare just cleaned hands because, you know, your hands, once you wash them, they're quite clean. And the fact is, and also these were objects that were meant to be handled. Um, you know, these aren't precious, complicated bits of machinery. Um, you know, these were things that were meant to be held in people's hands. Um, so the thing about gloves is gloves themselves are often much dirtier than they look. They also reduce your sense of touch. I think that's the biggest thing. They reduce your sense of touch. So the odds of tearing an edge or, dropping the book um, is much higher when you're wearing gloves. Really, your hands, except in you know some exceptional circumstances, will do the trick. But also, mind you, they're not saying like, hey, let's have 200 people come into the room and handle this rare Bible. It's like when they must be handled. What one the head of rare books at the Library of Congress said to me is, the best way to handle a rare book is with clean hands and caution.
3: Right. Clean, dry hands. Make sure you dry yeah, them. Dry. Uh, yes. But dry. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it seems like a, a lot of people have this idea about the white gloves, people who've never handled a, a rare book, who, who haven't been to the equivalent uh, of Sotheby's or the Beinecke yeah. li- Library. So we, you might wonder where this idea comes from. Some of it is from, I think, popular culture. Uh, Kat, let's play a little clip here. This is C1 from National Treasure. Now, if this thing's an invisible ink, how do we look at it? Throw it in the oven. No. Uh,
1: Ferrous inks can only be brought out with heat. Yes, but this
3: It's, is... it's, it's very old. This is very old. And we can't risk compromising the map. You need a reagent. Dad, it's really late. Why don't you get some rest? I'm fine. Lemons.
0: Oh, you can't do that. But it has to be done. And someone who's trained to handle antique documents is gonna do it. Okay.
3: So the person, the woman who says those words, uh, is wearing white gloves uh, because she's been trained to handle rare documents.
0: (laughs) Well, well, it should be noticed she's preparing to squeeze lemon juice onto the document. So that's weird.
3: Right. It's one of the few things that Nicolas Cage has ever been involved in that wasn't his fault. Uh, He's not the one who says that. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm just sort of thinking also that one of the things that happened with you is – and we began the show – I was early at the top of the show talking about when they changed the status of Pluto. And people mm. get really mad. You know? <laughs> people get really there's people are still furious that Pluto's not a planet. And it's not like they have like a timeshare there or something, you know? That its just <laughs> it's just like it makes them mad. And and I do think that people, once you get this idea in your like people got mad, right? They weren't just saying, oh, by the way, I think maybe white gloves, right? People were kind of indignant and self-righteous.
0: Yes. And that's I mean, that was what I was equally interested in. I was interested in writing an article that both sort of described this sort of phenomenon of this this stereotype this kind of visual cultural stereotype but also what fascinated me because i had seen this unfold on twitter um just the degree to which people very confidently and sometimes quite angrily insist to actual experts who are you know curators conservators no 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 you're wrong and then even after my story ran half the comments were people saying the people quoting this article who are like the head of rare books at the Library of Congress, the chief of conservation at the Morgan Library, some top dealers, the random people reading my article were loudly insisting in the comment section that they're wrong. So I was kind of interested in the kind of psychology of this. And it's funny, one of the um, uh, dealers and scholars I talked to who has sort of done bad, she sort of made it one of her mission to do battle with these people online. She said she got so sick of typing out, well, in fact, clean bare hands that she created some kind of shortcut on her phone that would automatically write six sentences explaining you know laying down the facts so I was just I was sort of amused by the whole kind of dynamic too of the relationship and the investment the kind of psychic investment random people seem to have in white gloves
3: um are there any instances where the white glove thing is true, where it does in fact sort of make sense uh, to to put some kind of gloves on for this particular item?
0: Yes, and I so I was I was really interested specifically in books and documents. So obviously, certain kinds of artwork you would wear white gloves, um, and you know probably archaeological sort of stuff. You're digging up out of the ground. I'm not really sure about that, but when it comes to books. If you are handling books that have sort of any kind of photo, certain kinds of photographic prints kind of incorporated into them because you don't want to touch photographic emulsions for the most part with your bare hands. Um, Books made of ivory, which actually do exist, or books with metal bindings, you know, kind of think about medieval kind of jewel encrusted silver bindings. Um, because, you know, you can leave fingerprints and smudge them. Exactly. You
3: know what, Jennifer Schuessler? Unfortunately, we are going to have to stop there. I actually have a lot more questions to ask you, but I also am out of time. Jennifer Schuessler is a culture reporter covering intellectual life and the world of ideas for The New York Times. We have to go right now, but people are going to ask you to support the show that you just heard. So please do thank you very, very much. It helps us in particular if you donate while we are on the air.
2: You can support The Colin McEnroe Show right now by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going online to ctpublic.org. I'll read those one more time, 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org. I'm Lily Tyson, Senior Producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, here with Robin Doyon-Aitken, Senior Producer of Seasoned, interrupting this hour of The Colin McEnroe Show to ask for your support during our Spring Membership Drive. If you're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show, you probably don't need me to tell you why this program matters, but just in case, I'll tell you that this show is really unique in the public radio ecosystem. We've started saying that we're public radio's most eclectic, eccentric program, and if you listen every day or even every once in a while, you've probably noticed that for yourself. We're just as comfortable talking about the latest in the world of politics as we are doing shows that sound like maybe they might be bad ideas, like ones about ringtones or zippers, but end up being really engaging hours that help us all look at the world around us in a different way. I'm always learning so much from this show, and my life is richer for it. If you feel that way too, and you value this show, consider giving to the station during this hour to show your support for The Colin McEnroe Show and all we do. You can do that by calling 1 800 584 2788 or by going to ctpublic.org.
1: And we can get a little extra bang for your buck this hour because if we make our $1,000 goal, Fuchs Financial will do a dollar-for-dollar dollar match. The folks at Fuchs Financial are trusted experts in wealth management, planning, and retirement, so please do give while we can double your gift. Call 1-800-584-2788 or go to ctpublic.org slash donate. And we are so close
2: to to meeting, to unlocking that grant right now. I think we just need about $290. So that is totally doable in this next couple of minutes. If you've been meaning to Give All Drive, now is the time you can help us unlock this goal. It's really exciting. Once again, that's 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org. We have a whole list of thank you gifts that you can get with a donation. Um, I'll highlight one for you right now. We have a special deal from 1 to 2 p.m. today only. You have a few minutes left to get this. We're discounting the pledge level on the Colin McIner Show mug to $5 a month as opposed to $6 a month. So this is a great opportunity for you, for fans of the show. Um, Once again, that's the Colin McIner Show mug. It's got a nice image of Colin, the show's name. It's very stylish uh, for a gift of $5 or more per month. You can donate now and support this show and the station that you rely on by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to ctpublic.org. I'll read those one more time. 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org. Chip in what you can. Every single dollar makes a difference. We are so grateful for your support during this membership drive. Thank you to everyone who's given.